Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 116 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Jenna Hollenstein, a non-diet dietitian who helps people struggling with chronic dieting, disordered eating, and eating disorders. She uses a combination of intuitive eating, mindfulness techniques, and meditation in her work, and in addition to being a registered dietitian nutritionist and certified intuitive eating counselor, Jenna is also a meditation teacher with the Open Heart Project. We had a really awesome conversation about food as self-care, disordered eating, eating disorders, and alcoholism as coping mechanisms, the connection between dieting and religion, tolerating discomfort and setting boundaries, diet culture's role in keeping social progress from happening, and lots and lots more. It was a really wonderful conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you all in just a moment. Today's listener question is from a listener named Kelly who writes, My question may be too specific to me, but as a fitness professional, I'm wondering how I can best support my clients who are practicing health at every size. I already avoid talking about calories, thinness, etc. whenever possible and focus on non-weight and non-thinness benefits, but I'm always looking for ways to fine-tune my approach. So thanks so much for this question, Kelly. And before I answer it, just a quick disclaimer that these answers are for educational and informational purposes only and are not intended to replace individual medical advice. Okay, so this is a great question, and I definitely don't think it's too specific to you because I think both fitness professionals and non-professionals could really benefit from understanding a health at every size approach to fitness. And so the first thing I would say is that's awesome that you're working on this and that you're trying to be conscious of not talking about calories or thinness and you know thinking about the other benefits of movement and physical activity. That's so great, and we need more fitness professionals like you because there really are not enough fitness professionals who are trained in health at every size. So it's it's awesome what you're doing already. I think, you know, in terms of fine-tuning your approach, one thing you might consider is thinking about fitness as not being a moral obligation, right? Because diet culture tells us that health and fitness are moral obligations. It tells us that people are better people if they are engaging in a certain type of fitness or movement that looks a certain way, right? Or eating that looks a certain way. And especially in this day and age of Instagram where people are always sharing what their pictures of health supposedly look like and their pictures of fitness, right, too. There is a real emphasis on having it look a certain way and fit into a certain box. So I think one thing you can do as a fitness professional, but also that all of us can do just as health at every size advocates, is to blow up this idea that fitness looks a certain way or that health looks a certain way, right? And so people can practice gentle movement that has nothing to do with structured fitness and structured activity, and that still counts as movement, right? And people can choose not to engage in movement for various reasons, you know? Like, 
for emotional health, right? If you're recovering from orthorexia or overexercise, it's actually probably the healthiest thing for your body not to engage in structured movement or activity, right? Just to do maybe the movements of daily life, like washing the dishes or going to school or work or whatever it is. But beyond that, not engaging in any structured fitness. And that's actually going to be the best thing for your health if you're in that place, right? Or if you're recovering from an injury, for example, right? Like it's going to be the best thing for you to rest your your injury, right? Maybe ice and elevate or be in a cast or be doing physical therapy or whatever you need to do, right? And if you have a disability too, obviously there's probably going to be certain ways, you know, a physical disability, certain ways that you might not be able to move. And so figuring out other ways of movement that are joyful to you, but not feeling pressured to have to do movement in a certain way that your body doesn't physically want to do, right? So all of that stuff is really helpful for fitness professionals to know that and to think about that, like kind of blowing up this concept that health and fitness should look a certain way and just offering to your clients and offering to anyone you talk to about fitness that like, hey, this is not a moral obligation. If you choose to engage in it and if it's joyful for you, that's awesome. I can teach you some moves to do. I can teach you some things for you know particular purposes if you want to strengthen for a particular sport or something like that. I'm happy to teach you that. But But I don't think that everybody has to be doing fitness in this certain way. I don't think everybody has to be doing fitness, period, right? And I think just as for me as a registered dietitian, I think it's super important for me to say, like, you don't have to eat in a way that society considers, quote unquote, healthy. You can do whatever feels good to you and whatever is right for your point in this journey right now. If that means only eating foods that society deems, quote unquote, unhealthy, and that's the best thing for your mental health right now, then go for it. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to say what's healthy or unhealthy because those terms don't really mean that much, actually, when it comes to nutrition and fitness, right? There's certain things, of course, there's certain principles of like nutritional balance or fitness in alignment, right? Maybe proper alignment for different moves you're doing to avoid injury or nutrition for specific conditions or for specific purposes or whatever, right? But like, ultimately, there is no one perfect way to do health or fitness or nutrition, right? There's no one right way. I said on Instagram recently, I had a post that was a quote from the episode with Louise Adams where she says, there's no such thing as good food or bad food, right? And I wrote a caption about how food really doesn't have any moral value. Like an apple has the same moral value as a hamburger, right? A hamburger and an apple are morally equivalent. And even health-wise, we can't say that one is objectively, quote unquote, healthy and one is objectively, quote quote-unquote, unhealthy. Because say, for example, you're really needing a sustaining, filling meal, right? The hamburger is going to be a much better fit for that purpose than the apple would be, right? The apple is not a sustaining, filling meal. You're not going to get the kind of energy and lasting satiation or fullness from it that you would from the burger, right? And if you are in a situation where you need a meal and you want to be sustained for a while and, you know, maybe you're looking for some protein and you're looking for some warmth and satisfaction and sort of umami, salty flavors, the burger is really going to fit the bill, right? And all of that is supporting your health because feeling full, feeling sustained, having energy, having satisfaction and pleasure, getting your desires met as well as your nutritional needs, all of that is important in a holistic relationship with food and your body, right? 
And for the apple, you know, maybe that's a better choice if you're in the mood for fruit, right? If you're in the mood for something fruity and crunchy or a snack instead of a meal or something sweet instead of something savory, right? But you could also just as easily choose, you know, if you're really in the mood for something sweet, you could choose a slice of cake also, right? So that's to say like the apple is not morally superior to the hamburger, right? They each have different functions, different purposes that they serve in a balanced overall relationship with food. So I bring that up as an analogy to this fitness idea where, you know, I'm a dietitian saying this stuff and it kind of rocks the boat, but it also kind of is, you know, a lot of people thank me for these messages and say, like, this is really important for a dietitian to be sharing, especially because there are such misconceptions about what quote unquote healthy food looks like and people can get so militant about it and so dogmatic about what they consider to be morally superior foods, right? And the same is true of fitness, right? We're, we're living in a time when people can be so dogmatic about their fitness choices and saying that one type of physical activity is the be-all, end-all, right, and is morally superior to all the others. And so as a fitness professional, you have a real opportunity here to educate people on like, no, actually, there is no one right way to do fitness. And even thinking about it as quote-unquote fitness isn't right for everybody, depending on where they're at in their journey. Like for some people, it's just about movement, right? It's just about some form of movement that feels good and joyful to them. For some people, it's, you know, activity, right? Things, activities that they love to do or sports that they like to engage in or whatever it is. But there is no moral obligation to pursue fitness, let alone to pursue fitness in a certain way, right? So yeah, I think that's one of the biggest messages that I would add to what you're already doing is just to really give a different model and a different take on the sort of obligatory fitness world that some people might be coming from, right? Because I don't know what form of fitness professional you are, if you're a personal trainer in a gym or you're doing group classes or instructions or private lessons or whatever, but whatever setting you're in, you're probably engaging with some people, you know, with a lot of people who are in this diet mentality, right? Because the diet mentality is very much entrenched in the fitness world and especially for people who are in gyms or in athletic programs or, you know, certain sports, they're probably steeped in that diet mentality about fitness and how it's got to be a certain way and that it is a moral obligation or whatever. So for you to offer a different take on things could really open up some people's worlds and introduce them to a different way of thinking. Because health at every size, the principles of health at every size are both that people of all sizes can pursue health without losing weight and without making weight loss the goal and achieve health outcomes that they want to achieve without losing any weight at all, and they'll still be better off health-wise if they so choose. Because the other piece of it is is anti-healthism, right? It's against the idea that health is a moral obligation. And health at every size says health is something you can choose to pursue or not, depending on your time, your resources, the stage you're at in life, your values, et cetera, right? So health doesn't have to be a value for everyone. So I think that's the, the piece of health at every size that maybe was missing from what you're already doing, which sounds amazing. And so just bringing that lens two things and and telling people that you know health is not the be all end all but they can pursue it if they so choose and here are some options for them to do that in a way that is like you said not making it about body size or calories or shrinking or anything like that the other thing is thinking about people's ability levels and reassuring them that 
whatever their ability level, whatever they're able to do right now, whatever they may be able to do in the future, there's nothing wrong with them for for not being able to quote unquote achieve whatever they think they should be able to achieve, right? So for some folks, there's a limited range of motion in certain areas of our bodies, right? Or a disability, like I said earlier. There are things where we're all going to have some physical limitations, right? Our bodies can't just do anything all the time. So sort of helping hold space for that and giving people compassion and just diffusing any shame that comes up around it by sharing the fact that, yeah, nobody's body is able to do every single thing. And, you know, maybe sharing some of your own story if you're comfortable, like, yeah, my body really doesn't want to do that either. Or it took me a really long time to be able to do this thing that I'm asking you to do now. So I'm not expecting it to happen overnight. So really don't beat yourself up if you can't master this today or in the next few weeks or whatever. Like this is going to take a lot of practice, right? So giving people reassurance that they don't need to expect the impossible of their bodies and that they can take all the time they need to build up stamina or whatever it is that they need to do for a particular fitness move or particular move in general, right? So I hope that helps. And if you want to ask your own question for inclusion in one of these episodes, you can go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions and submit your question there. If you want a deeper dive into intuitive eating and health at every size and a library of answers to hundreds of questions like this one, plus a community of people who can support you in breaking free from diet culture, check out my intuitive eating online course, which is called Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. You've probably heard enough of these podcasts to know that diet culture really robs people of their joy, their creativity, their time, their energy, and their money, right? And I've started using the term life thief to describe how diet culture steals your vitality and just wastes your precious time on this planet with its bullshit. Well, my online course is a great place to start reclaiming your life from this thief. I'll teach you how to fight back against diet culture and how to set clear boundaries to keep it from stealing from you ever again. I'll teach you how to reconnect with your inner wisdom and stop listening to the lies that diet culture is telling you. And I'll connect you with fellow course participants from around the world who can help you on this journey. So go to christyharrison.com slash course to learn more and sign up now. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And then if you want an even deeper dive into all this great anti-diet stuff, you can get on the wait list for my five-month intuitive eating private coaching program. It could be a great fit for you if you don't have an active eating disorder right now, but you do know that your relationship with food could be better. You're ready to give up dieting and pursue body acceptance, and you want my help. I'll be sending out more info about the program to folks on the waiting list later this month, but I just wanted to let you know now so that you can be sure to get on it if you'd be interested in working with me. So you can head over to christyharrison.com slash coaching to learn more and join my wait list. That's christyharrison.com slash coaching. We're brought to you today by Care.com. Why spend your precious weekend time cleaning, driving, or dog walking? Let Care.com help you handle everyday tasks so you can spend more time with your family and do the things that matter. With access to 8.6 million caregivers across 16 countries, Care.com is the world's largest digital marketplace for finding and managing family care. You can find, book, and pay sitters, nannies, housekeepers, dog walkers, senior care, tutors, and more all in one place. So whether you need childcare while you're at work or you want to line up a date night sitter, using Care.com makes life simpler for families everywhere. 
They even provide access to a variety of background check options that you can purchase to help you make the best possible hiring decision for you. Join for free as a basic member and start searching for great local caregivers today. Once you upgrade to a premium membership, you can reach out to them, schedule interviews, and pay for care online or through the app. I love this because I'm a busy lady, right? I've got lots going on in my life, and I really value being able to just take care of everything in one place. I love decisive action, so not having to go chase down invoices in my email or go back and forth in various different email threads and just get all scattered really helps me simplify things because my inbox is a total black hole. So being able to schedule and manage everything through the app is exactly what I need. So to save 30% off a Care.com premium membership, you can visit care.com slash psych and subscribe. That's care.com slash P-S-Y-C-H. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Jenna Hollenstein. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. You know, it was a little conflicted. I feel like there were a lot of mixed messages in my house because my mom was a great cook. She was a home economics teacher and was very interested in, you know, cooking foods from different cuisines and cultures. And at the same time, there was a lot of concern about bodies and weight and, you know, as if one could not enjoy eating and have a healthy, happy body. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it was like enjoying food was sort of seen as a gateway into some sort of problem with your body. Yeah. As if she was doing us some sort of disservice. I think she might've even used those actual words by being focused on food and flavor and enjoyment and quality. Wow. Yeah. It was confusing. Very, because I mean, as we know, as intuitive eating counselors, right, it's like, that's exactly what you want in a healthy relationship with food is to think about those things to think about pleasure and taste. Right. And, and to not, you know, interject that concern that there might be something wrong with it, or that natural experience of pleasure and satisfaction is leading you astray or leading you towards something dangerous. And then, you know, at some point, I, I remember what feels significant to me as like a reluctant, you know, high school athlete, I would comfort myself with a bowl, like an extra meal a day, basically a bowl of like hot buttered pasta with cheese from a can. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember like the days that I would come home from high school and have to go back out to basketball practice. And, you know, the gym would be freezing cold and I'd get headaches. And so I would sit in the kitchen and I'd make this bowl of pasta and like watch the Oprah Winfrey show, ironically. (laughs) And just that was my moment of self-care before I had to like go back out and (laughs) work work out in the cold gym and be an average basketball player. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So you said you were a reluctant athlete. Did you like enjoy it to some extent, but it was the competition that made it a problem? Or did you not really want to do it in the first place and feel pushed into it? You know, I think it's funny because it has a lot to do with my body and my perception of my body. I was always taller. And so I think it was sort of assumed that I would be an athlete. You know, I would play basketball, I would swim, I would run. And yeah, I, I liked being active. I liked being in my body. I think that's like sort of a natural intuitive thing that we enjoy. But when it came to like competing, I just, I didn't kind of have that in me, you know, 
I think there's oh there's always some part of me that's always almost been afraid of like really latching on to the competition thing because as if I would almost take it too far. Did you have that personality type, the sort of like go take it all the way type of personality or? I have the sensitivity to it. I'm not even sure if I have the personality type, but like, you know, my story has always been about like trying to find the middle ground, being sort of leery of the extremes, being too much in the one direction or, or the other. Where do you think that came from? I think it came from some of these mixed messages. I think it came from this kind of feeling of being sort of at the same time, like too much and not enough. So sort of always desperately seeking the middle ground and like trying to figure out what that even was and realizing there were no guidelines for it. Yeah. So that really wasn't modeled for you. No, I don't really think it was. And it didn't seem like anybody else was concerned with it. It seemed like, you know, other people sort of had a natural ability to navigate things. And I felt like I needed to work really hard to find the middle ground. Hmm. In terms of your relationship with food, did that lead you to restrict or sort of follow diet rules? I definitely love rules. I think that's part of why that appeals so much to me. And frameworks in general appeal so much to me because I almost felt growing up as if I lacked that kind of basic intuition. So having something that was certain was always very appealing. And the idea that certain foods were good and certain foods were bad, or that there were certain ways in which to eat that would lead you to have the type of body that was desirable, supposedly both by you and by others, that really clicked with me. I think there is that kind of natural affinity for certainty. And what I've learned you know, over time is that there's no such thing. It's all an illusion. But that desire for that ground under your feet is so strong. You know, we do different things to kind of pretend that it's there. When do you think that took hold for you? The idea that uncertainty was the rule and not the exception? Yeah, or that you were just sort of looking for a rule, looking for a way, a guideline or whatever. You know, it might not have even occurred to me in a very clear way until I dealt in adulthood with my relationship with alcohol. And throughout my childhood and and growing up, part of this feeling of like not being, like kind of being too much and not enough at the same time led me to want to manage that, right? To like not have emotions that were as strong as I felt, to not feel as awkward as I felt, to, you know, and to be sort of who other people wanted me to be. And so I learned to self-medicate by drinking to do that. And, you know, in our culture, I mean, it's so encouraged. I was in Boston for a graduate school and Boston's sort of a big drinking town. And it's sort of the main event rather than something you do with other people. (laughs) So it seemed very normal to me. It seemed like a very normal and easy way to comply with the culture's expectations, to be the person that was most likely to be happy and healthy and well, I don't know, adjusted. (laughs) And then I realized that I was using it to like not feel what was really going on with me. And that started to bother me more and more. And then I think that's when I sort of started to realize like, oh, you know, 
I'm looking for something certain here. I'm, there's a certain predictability to when I drink or when I use food in a certain way or when I fill in empty space with a sort of predictable behavior or something like that. Comfort. I'm looking for security. I'm looking to feel safe. And something pulled me toward moving closer into the discomfort. Yeah. What do you think that was? I think that was some instinct that I was distracting myself from reality. And even if I thought it was like a preferable alternate <laughs> fact, alternate reality, it, it just couldn't stand up to the idea that I was kind of fooling myself. I wasn't really even living my life. Yeah. Was there a moment that sort of clarified that to you? I wrote a book and my friends threw me a book party and I got so drunk at that book party that I totally missed it. Hmm. I totally missed the party. And you know what else, which maybe is worse? I didn't really like express the gratitude to my friends for having done this thing for me that they deserved. You know, I totally like miss that opportunity. And that's something I can't ever get back. You know, you start to see these little things building up and these little lost opportunities, these little relationships that aren't cherished or something that, you know, is a little scary, but maybe is worth exploring a little bit more. And there's like a lost opportunity of exploring it. And even in my late 20s, early 30s, I mean, you know, hopefully I'll have a long life, but like it scared me that time was so finite and I was sort of missing out on my own life in a lot of ways. So it sounded like, it sounds like drinking really became the thing for you. It wasn't, I mean, you said you used food to cope a little bit as well. Do you think that was the restrict binge cycle sort of happening or just some low level emotional eating or? I think it was a fairly consistent relationship with emotional overeating. And also there were times when I think I know that I adjusted my eating based on my drinking. And that was to like not show on the outside that I was drinking so much. Like I would restrict what I was eating in order to accommodate all the calories I was taking in from cheap red wine <laughs> when I was, you know, in my first year of graduate school in, in Boston and, you know, struggling with a lot of very strong emotions and like not knowing how to manage them. Yeah. And was that graduate school for nutrition? Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. It was. That must have been some real cognitive dissonance, right? Oh, it was. But, you know, I saw that, you know, I don't know if this is the exception of the rule. I saw that whenever I was with other colleagues or people studying or practicing nutrition, I saw that we all had our stuff and that we weren't really copying to it. So there was a significant amount of cognitive dissonance. And, you know, I, I pursued nutrition for a lot of different reasons. Maybe, you know, one of them was the idea that this was a framework and a, and a form of certainty. <laughs> it was, only, you know, very shortly into it that I realized that it felt like it was always changing and it wasn't sure-footed at all. <laughs> but yeah, I, I just, I chose actually when I graduated not to pursue a clinical practice or a counseling type of relationship with patients and to go the route of like medical and science writing instead, because I really wasn't comfortable with that dynamic, you know? 
I went to Tufts, which they, they had a great program that really focused on nutrition and communications and writing. And whenever I would sit down to write something, I would end up writing about disordered eating. Interesting. I could not find another topic. It was like 50 shades of disordered eating. (laughs) Think of writing. And I was like, what is going on here? And I think, you know, it was really not until years later in dealing with my drinking and in dealing with just how I used any substance, food included, to modify how I was feeling that I really kind of had an aha moment. That's so interesting and really squares with my experience, too, because I also started out in writing and journalism Mm -hmm. and was covering food and nutrition, but struggling with my own eating disorder behind the scenes. And very similarly, like everything I, you know, most things I wrote anyway, circled back in some way to disordered eating, whether it was like projecting my own villainization of certain kinds of foods through an article or talking about people's weird, you know, I was really obsessed with like stories about like pica or, you know, like weird eating disorder or, you know, weird, not even eating disorders, but I guess pica is considered an eating disorder, but it's different than the typical eating disorders. And I was sort of like interested in all these different manifestations of disordered eating Mm -hmm. and looking back more recently at those articles, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm totally crying out for help in some of those stories. And it didn't really get recognized. So you know what that shows me? What that tells me is that as weird as we are, as awkward as we are, as vulnerable as we are, we have this instinct to go toward what we need. And we screw it up in endless ways. And I really think that this is part of the manifestation of disordered eating, because at the heart of a lot of the things that we do that are dysfunctional with food in our bodies, at the heart of those things is a desire to feel okay. You know, and so I think that even though we screw it up in 80 million different ways, it's our instinct to move toward something that will help us find peace. Yeah, that's really well said and such a brilliant insight. Because it does, I mean, I think with dieting, we see that too, right? People get sort of sucked into like Whole30 or counting macros or clean eating or whatever the diet du jour is. And it's it's this desire to feel like we have mastery or feel like we can sort of be safe and have a structure and have a framework. Like you said, like we want some sort of certainty and we want some sort of relief from the pain we're feeling. And In that sense, it's so natural that people get sucked into these things. And I, you know what, all of the words that you just used could even be applied to the reasons that people are drawn toward religion, which is the big connection for me, you know, because it is like a religion, right? It it provides a code, it provides a community, it provides a clear outline of goodness and badness. Absolutely. We're drawn to that. Right. We can't help ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why religion exists in the first place, right? We want we want a philosophy to make sense of this weird thing that is the world. And anything that we struggle with, we want a sense that like this is not for nothing. This is not because I'm bad. This is not random. You know, we want a, a, something to, or it, like, actually a lot of the time we do want a sense that like, oh, it's because I'm bad and I could do better because that feels more workable. Yes, exactly. Then, you know, if it was just out of our hands. 
Totally. And what's interesting to me is that as like the number of people who identify with a religion has gone down over time, the number of people who identify with like a certain way of eating has gone up. Yes. We talked a little bit about this in another episode with Alan Levinovitz, who is a religious scholar. He wrote a book about people's obsession with gluten and sort of wanting to cut things out of their diet for like purity and Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is really interesting that this sense of like, you know, we're all people who unite around a common thing that we're cutting out of our diets or that we're, you know, following a particular dietary framework. Like there is community in that, there is certainty, there is a sense of safety. There's clear morality, you know, Mm -hmm. because these things are talked about as like evil, dangerous, unclean. The goal is obvious. Right, exactly. It's like to purify, to cleanse, to be morally okay. I think it, it's so clear in the term clean eating, but I think, you know, all sort of modern diets have some version of that, right? They, yeah, they clearly kind of want to be aligned with rightness. Yes. You know, whether it's eating like our ancestors or eating only certain foods that supposedly are produce fewer inflammatory reactions in the body. Right. But when you boil it down, they all come to this desire for safety. Yes. And of course, that's a, such a natural human desire, right? We, totally. we all want that. Totally. So I think it's, it's really important to recognize that and to know like that's a natural human instinct and we, we need to figure out a way to work with it that doesn't hurt us more because – these diets and these ways of eating, unfortunately, are just hurting us more, right? It's just making the problem worse. In the same way, I mean, I would say in my own experience, like working as a food writer and struggling with disordered eating and sort of being secretive about it, in some ways made the problem worse. In some ways it helped me, but like it was, you know, not the ideal way to go. But it was coming from a place of like wanting to master, wanting to overcome this thing that was hurting me and keeping me down. And it just was needing to find a different way to go about that that was more flexible and open and human, I think. Well, and I think it has to do with the way we we relate to our own experience. Because I think a lot of why we fall into and get swept away by the diet culture is because there's almost promises of you'll be happier, you'll be healthier, you will suffer less. It's basically the subtext of how they sell it. And, you know, it's a natural human desire, just as you said, to hold on to pleasure and to avoid pain. But that actually leads to greater suffering. To like think that you can make the party last forever and never feel discomfort, that will actually give you more discomfort overall than anything else. Right. Because discomfort is a part of life too, right? We have to acknowledge that pain will come. Pain will be a part of life for all of us on and off throughout our lives. Of course. And if we think that we're doing it wrong, like doing life wrong, because we're experiencing struggles and suffering and pain, discomfort, then we sort of get off the point. We, then we double down on our diet or we restrict even more and think that that's the thing that's going to lead us to salvation. When what I've discovered through my own work and and then through working with others is it's not about not feeling any pain. It's about how we relate to even the slightest 
forms of discomfort. Yeah, that makes so much difference, right? It's fighting against it versus working with it. It's, it makes a huge difference. And I, I think one of the biggest dangers of the diet culture and its empty promises are that you'll feel better about yourself and more confident when, as we know, you know, when the diets fail and when even amplifying your efforts don't lead to the results that you think you're going to get, you feel worse and worse about yourself. But also the kind of underlying motivation to, to suffer less by avoiding your discomfort and, and focusing on your body as the way to solve that, that tends to chip away at your self-confidence too, because you just, you don't have the trust and the deep knowledge that you can weather and navigate any circumstances that come up. Yeah, that's such a good point because I, I do see that a lot too with clients. And I know I felt this back in the day as well. It's like this promise that's held out down the line as like when I get thin or thin enough, then my life's going to be amazing and all this stuff is going to fall into place. But it's just like it recedes in the distance. It never, you never quite catch it. You never quite touch it because even if you get to the point where you thought you'd be happy, you end up, you're, you're feeling so, like your confidence is so shaken because you're fighting against your body, oftentimes having behaviors that are shameful to you, like binging or not feeling in control around food. It's like that in and of itself shakes your confidence, that sort of relationship with your body and with food. And so you never really get it, even if you're there. And paradoxically, like some of the people I've seen who are the least confident, the most unhappy, the most like hindered in their life and have the smallest lives are the people who've like, quote unquote, done it the best when it comes to dieting, right? They've yeah. dieted, quote, perfectly. Right. And it's made their life like a hollow shell of what it was. I couldn't agree more. Because and, and that is, I, I think, the even bigger problem with diet culture is how it makes our vision smaller. And we become narrower and we focus. It's It's like this very strange form of narcissism that helps no one, you know, and what really suffers is everybody. <laughs> because as that person becomes sort of more and more entrenched in those behaviors and more and more focused on controlling their lives through that, and I'm finding any kind of satisfaction through that control, think about all the things that they're not thinking about. Think about all the different ways in which they're not using their gifts. They're not relating to other people. They're not exploring. They're not learning to deal with their own difficulty. They're not learning to relate to other people, which is, I think, the way we're going to figure out how to save the planet, which is just yes. to, you know, have a society that knows how to relate to one another, you know? Yeah. So I see that as a, a huge kind of silent, creeping detriment of the diet culture. Absolutely. It reminds me of that Naomi Wolf quote, dieting is the most potent political sedative there is. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to keep, you know, she was talking about women and feminism, but really increasingly it's affecting people of all genders. Absolutely. That it's a way to keep people small and keep them from standing their political power right. and sort of using their voice to push back on oppressive forces from the outside. So like diet culture is really antithetical to social justice and progress and, you know, the things that a lot of us might want and believe in. But like diet culture is keeping us from being able to fully participate 
in the process of creating the world that we want. It totally is because, you know, when it comes down to it, until we learn how to use more of our brains, we have a limited amount of real estate up there (laughs) and it on tracking and criticizing and planning in ways that align with the diet culture. We're not using it for other things. Right. Absolutely. It's like your mental energy just gets completely consumed by thoughts about food, thoughts about your body, thoughts about exercise, et cetera. And there are thoughts that are like hamster in a wheel thoughts. They're not even thoughts that lead to further thoughts. Right. They're thoughts that the next day you have to get up and do it all over again. You don't ever go anywhere. Yeah. It's interesting. I remember like when I was really in my eating disorder, you know, having this sense that if I could just think about it a little harder, if I could just plan a little more perfectly, if I could just like crack the code, then I would get a handle on things. And I spent so much time thinking that that was true and sort of believing that like my mental energy really was going somewhere. But now I look back on that and I'm like, I accomplished nothing except digging myself deeper into that hole, you know? Yeah. And causing myself more pain, which it wasn't my fault. You know, it was the fault of the eating disorder, diet culture, and all the forces that had sort of conspired to to lead me there. But like, absolutely. But it was keeping me stuck. Right, right. And you know what? We don't learn anywhere to relate to our problems differently. Nobody kind of comes into class one day and like wheels the television on the cart and like shows <laughs> a little like video about like. It's not about having less struggles in your life. It's about relating to them differently. Nobody ever says that unless you're like brought up in a different culture where there is this sort of different way of relating to suffering. Yeah. And our culture privileges people who are able to like just latch on to a problem and think through it and, you know, gives people A's in class and, you know, elevates them to the status of good student if your mind works like that particularly well. So it's it's sort of like there's so much that reinforces that behavior in our society. Right. But I mean, I, I mentioned that my my mom was a home economics teacher and there is so many, you know, home ec, like a lot of other areas of study, like arts and music and theater and things like that have gone away. And these are like, to me, these have always been like the most important things. Like these are the things that, not that you don't use calculus and physics, but you totally, in English, you totally do. But you also need to know how to like navigate your life. Right. Someone had come to me when I was, nine, because nine seems like where it all went a little cuckoo. If someone had come to me at nine and said, you know, you are not too much, you are just fine the way you are, what will help you is to learn to sit with things as they are and accept them and figure out what's the best way to respond. And it wasn't until, gosh, about nine years ago that I feel like I started to gain an understanding of that. Yeah. I mean, so what you're talking about, a lot of it is this sort of Buddhist tradition, right? Like this different way of relating to suffering. And I'm curious, like how you started to get into that and what sort of brought your awareness to the fact that we could relate to suffering differently. The book by Pema Chodron. I read the book. A lot of it talked about having a sitting meditation practice. And I just wasn't ready to sit yet. <laughs> so I wanted, like, but I wanted what she was talking about, you know? It made sense to me. 
And I knew that there was something there. I just wasn't willing to put my butt on the cushion. And then a few years later, I finally, you know, stopped drinking. I think I was 33. And then about a year later, I started a relationship with my partner, my current partner, and went to a person that I had met through my ex, actually, a woman named Susan Piver, who was a Buddhist meditation teacher. And I said, okay, I, I need to start meditating now. Now is the time or this relationship will not survive. So no way that I will be able to not implode unless I have some, something to ground me. And I was trying to explain this, you know, in all these different ways. And I was kind of weeping on her couch and for two hours. And then she said, so what you're saying is you want to keep an open heart and you want to have some stability. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I've been trying to say for the last like 34 years of my life. I want to have an open heart and have some stability. And certainly in recovery, I didn't want to hide out. I didn't want to stay inside a little cocoon. I wanted to be in the world because I was in for like the, in some ways the first time out in the world again, just myself unprotected. But I didn't want to fall apart. Still the same sensitive, awkward, crazy person. And, you know, so I was like, how do I do this? She's like, I'll show you. And we sat down and we meditated for the first time. It was the first time for me. And she provided instruction. And it was exactly what I was looking for. And then when I went back to some of these books, including that initial book by Pema Chodron, it made sense on a completely different level, what she was saying. But like the missing piece was actually sitting for, you know, it could just be like a few minutes a day. And working with my mind. That was the critical piece that I was missing. Yeah. And when you say working with your mind, what do you mean by that? Like what were some of the techniques or ideas that helped you do that? Yeah. I mean, the technique that I practice is called shamatha. And it means like the practice of tranquility or peacefully abiding. And it's a breath-focused practice where you sit in, you can sit in a chair, you can sit on the floor on a cushion, you just have a sort of uplifted posture. You don't have to sit in full lotus or anything like that. And you bring your mind's attention to the feeling of the breath. So you're just feeling your body breathing. You're not thinking about breathing, but you're feeling your body doing it. You're not trying to stop thinking, which I thought you had to do when you meditated. Yeah, I think a lot of people have that misconception. Yeah. And so you I think of it as just a practice of allowing things to be as they are, sort of being with yourself in those moments. So you bring your awareness to the feeling of the breath. You know, sometimes you notice like the air hitting the back of your throat. Other times you notice like the cloth of, you know, the clothes that you're wearing brushing against your skin. Moment by moment, what is apparent varies. And then thoughts pop up right? Because that's the mind's job. They're, oh, it's always going to produce thought. And no matter what the content of the thought, if it's silly or distressing or thought about lunch or your shopping list, you know, you just acknowledge it and then come back to that feeling of the breath. And so you're training your mind to be placed on a certain object, you know, and you're, you're kind of just settling your nervous system, just training your nervous system to notice 
what's happening. Yeah, which is such a, an important skill, I think, with any sort of recovery, right? Because there's this, when you're in a difficult relationship with some substance or person or, you know, using food or restricting food or whatever as a way to kind of escape, it's like it feels so immediate. The need to do something feels so immediate. It's like, I can't stand this. I have to do something now. Right. So to be able to just practice like, okay, I'm not going to do anything now. I'm going to feel this feeling and I'm going to tolerate it and trust that I'll be okay is a revolutionary act. It is crazy, right? Mm-hmm. The company that sells meditation cushions, Samadhi cushions, their slogan is don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> I love that. I totally stole that for a blog post years ago because I was like, who would ever think in this like, do it now, do it faster, do it better culture that like not reacting would be the right response. Yes. Such a skill to have to learn that, right? Like we've gone way too far in the direction of always doing something. It's incredible. But yeah, we are, I mean, you've heard people say, you know, we're more human doings than human beings, right? Yep. I mean, it's that's the case. And when it comes to recovery and craving or urge, the idea that we could observe it and watch it and like get a sense of its texture, allow ourselves to actually feel it. Because a lot of times the urge is preceded by something distressing and immediately, you know, followed by the behavior or even a thought. And the idea that we could just allow the distressing thing, the urge and the desire to react to just be without taking action and then maybe deciding if we want to respond, you know, using skillful means, that's a completely different way of relating to it. I mean, one of the basic things that I work with people on is in meditation, just like noticing when you have an itch, right? Because I mean, the mind will do anything to entertain itself when you are just sitting, staring at like a wall or your shrine or whatever, you know? I mean, I always find like when I'm on retreat or something like that, I always manage to find like faces in the sweater of the person sitting in front of (laughs) or like the floorboards or something like that. It's, you know, the mind just makes up its own version of Netflix. And we also feel like bodily sensations that we wouldn't otherwise notice necessarily or not even notice that we're reacting to them. And so inevitably, there will come a time when you feel a bodily sensation, a desire to move your leg or to itch your face or something like this. And just noticing it but not reacting right away is a wonderful way to like train in that non-reactivity. Absolutely. Because even if it's just a couple of seconds, that makes a difference. Totally. And an element of choice then in how you respond as opposed to being on autopilot. It's interesting thinking about this in the context of restrictive eating disorders or eating disorders that have like a restrictive element to them, because that's the one place where I think feeling an urge, feeling a desire, sometimes we need to like heighten that and amplify that. Like what subtle sensations of hunger are you noticing or what desire for a particular food are you noticing? Because so many of us, you know, from chronic dieters to people who've suffered from eating disorders, you know, will have a thought pop into our heads like, ooh, I want ice cream. And then immediately shut it down and be like, nope, you're going to have yogurt instead. Or you're going to, you know, just this sort of like 
shunting of your desire into a more acceptable, quote unquote, direction. And so learning to pay attention to those subtle urges in those cases can be so profound and so healing because if you can sort of notice like, oh, I want ice cream and I'm going to have some, that's actually a step towards healing. You know, it's funny because I always make this kind of like overlapping circle motion with my fingers when I'm talking to people for the first time about like how our biology and psychology overlap and we have how, you know, the non-diet approach and the health at every size approach deals with all of that. Part of what I love about meditation is that it's all about synchronizing the mind and the body, like putting those two in the same place at the same moment intentionally. And so that addresses, that heightens our sensitivity to what's going on biologically, physically, and also to what's going on psychologically or emotionally, you know, in terms of just what's going on in our minds, but also what's, what's going on in terms of the, the physical manifestation of those things. So when you bring up the idea of the desire for a certain food and then the immediate like shutdown of that's not safe. I have to edit that. You know, the other thing that I think is relevant here is that the Buddhist idea of like first thought, best thought of like trusting that first thought that comes up when somebody is dealing with a restrictive eating disorder. So powerful. Yeah. I did, uh, well, I still occasionally do, but for a while I was very seriously doing improv comedy. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that was such a huge step in my overall healing because it really trains you to go with your first thought and just see what happens. You know, you have to just make a choice. You're making up stuff from scratch and you can't hesitate. You can't backtrack or edit yourself. You have to just kind of like let whatever falls out of your mouth or whatever gesture you make turn into something and see where that goes. And so, you know, I think about that a lot with life choices too, where it's like, we do have intuition and instinct guiding us in a lot of cases. And we're far more kind of educated. And, you know, it's like, we're all making sort of guesses or our best attempts at things, but from a place of like a lot of learned experience, you know, we all have so much accumulated life experience that our first instincts oftentimes are going to be something that is really good for us, you know, that's, that really works. And then, you know, it's the problem is when we've learned to like not trust that through trauma, through, you know, disordered eating, dieting, eating disorders, or lots of other conditioning to not trust our instincts, then we get just so confused. And it, it does really lead to that sense of like using something outside ourselves to give us structure rather than trusting the structure that we already have within us. Right. I mean, and I think, you know, it's great that that you brought up the idea of comedy because I I think we're also afraid of being like laughed at or being thought a fool or being just kind of perceived negatively. And the person um, who brought the lineage of Buddhism that I studied to um, the West, you know, famously said, like, don't be afraid to be a fool. And I, to me, that was transformative because all of the things that I had done and used was about staying out of the critical eye of others or of like being the way that I thought others wanted me to be because the, the rest of my, you know, what came naturally was so strange, you know, in my perception, I mean, I'm probably like the most normal looking person too, but a lot of people are surprised to even know that this is my experience, you know, but to my 
to my judgment, you know, I just felt like such a strange little awkward person that like, I really, you know, didn't want to be a fool. And like the idea that I could just put myself out there and a big part of my recovery was writing a blog called Drinking to Distraction and just putting myself out there in that way and being vulnerable in that way by disclosing, you know, some of my deepest, darkest secrets. That was incredible for me. And like, I always knew I was kind of onto something if I felt like mild nausea as I hit the button. (laughs) Yes. Because it was like, oh, okay, this actually matters. This isn't about like managing how people perceive you. This is about something that you need to work through. Yes. That's really also kind of resonates with my experience of doing the podcast because it was very much the same thing. Like that was sort of a final step in my healing too was opening up about my relationship with food on a larger scale and talking with other people about it and connecting with them. And I also felt like such a weirdo for so much of my life. And, you know, I think part of that was that I was teased and bullied at various points in my childhood by peers who, like, just didn't get me. And I now look back on that and I'm like, I was so interesting and cool. And, like, I had such weird kind of funny ideas about things that, like, I wasn't actually taking too seriously. I was kind of silly and free. But then when I would, like, say something or you know, be that way, and someone would judge that, that's when I start, suddenly felt like, oh, okay, I guess I'm not supposed to right. follow that instinct. I guess there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah. And you didn't even realize it until you heard the kind of negative feedback from other people. Right, exactly. And it's taken so long to sort of reclaim that spark and be like, no, like, that is who I am. I'm <laughs> totally a weirdo, but I'm like, Super, I think I'm super interesting. You know, I think I have a lot to offer. Yeah. Rather than like, oh, I'm not like them, so there's something wrong with me. I couldn't agree more. And I think that that is, you know, we we try so hard to like fit in and through that try to be lovable. And we just miss the fact that it's what makes it's what makes us lovable is the weirdest things about us. Yes. You know, and it's also what makes the world more interesting, you know, and I think what helps move it in a better direction. Absolutely. Like the diversity of human personalities and experiences and ideas, ideas and, you know, sizes and shapes and ethnicities and religions, too. Right. Like there's all of it. It's all part of this sort of larger social justice thing of like, how can we accept everybody? How can we accept diversity, you know, even at levels that we're not comfortable with? And I think the willingness, your willingness to do the podcast and to self-disclose, I think we might've even started our practices around the same time. And like, even then, not a lot of people were self-disclosing. I know. And I was like, oh man, you know, here I am. I just published this book based on my blog about my own experience with drinking. And now I'm going to be working with clients and they're going to like read this book and (laughs) I'm going to have no choice but to self-disclose, you know, some of these things because I'm already out there. It just didn't feel safe. But what I realized is that genuine and like authentic vulnerability begets more genuine and authentic vulnerability. And that actually helps people deal with their stuff. You know, I didn't personally do AA, but once in a while, I, I really like one of their sayings. And one of them is this idea of like, you're only as sick as your secrets, of course, timing matters and you have to feel safe to share things 
about yourself and you have to be stable enough to do that because you don't know what's going to come back at you sometime when you disclose. But the idea that the things that you think are the worst thing about you could kind of actually free other people, that makes everything worth it. That makes that fear and that kind of uncertainty so much more (laughs) possible. Yes. Yeah. And we really, I mean, I have so many thoughts on that because I I love that you brought up the timing and the safety element, right? Because I think there is, you know, now it's, it's interesting just in the last like four or five years, I think there's been a sort of explosion of like, vulnerability from clinicians, you know, Mm -hmm. more and more clinicians self-disclosing and doing blogs and podcasts and things like that. And I think that's great. But I think to anyone who's sort of considering it and maybe still working through their own stuff, I think that's it's a really important thing to think about your own personal safety and comfort with what you share and whether you're ready to experience the vulnerability of having things out there or if it's going to set back your own recovery and maybe if you need to set a boundary around it for now, that's okay, right? Like you're always allowed to set boundaries to protect the things you need to protect. Yeah. And I've found that talking about things after the fact, like I was recovered behaviorally and mostly in terms of the thoughts when I started the podcast and when I started self-disclosing. And I think that was a much different experience for me than it would have been if I was still in it. No, I get that. I get that. And I also think, I don't know what you would say about this, but sometimes early in recovery, we can feel so invigorated and sort of excited and want to share this with other people that we get into a role like that too early. Right. And I think that the desire is a good one and the intention is clearly a good one. But sometimes it can be a way of avoiding going deeper in our own stuff. And it can also not sort of being a little bit further along on our process, even though personally, I think that we're always on our path and in our process, not being further along and sort of being pretty early can can be detrimental to other people, right? Because on the one hand, you might identify really, really strongly and create connections with people who are still in their eating disorder in active use of some sort of substance. But on another hand, you don't have the time and the ground and the perspective necessarily to sort of be in a, a role of, of guiding them, however pure and beneficial your intentions are. Totally. Yeah, I completely agree. And I see people who are like, still in their process of recovery or blogging or podcasting about it where they want to start coaching or something or want you know have people coming to them for the, for advice. Yeah. And I think that's a dangerous position to be in both for the people that you're trying to serve because you might be unintentionally transmitting some disordered beliefs and behaviors to them because you don't know yet because you're not there. And then also because that can hinder your own recovery process, like you said, because if you sort of have to hold yourself up as this expert or this guide or something, that can create some conflict of like, maybe you're feeling like you have to pretend to be someone you're not, and you're not actually being authentic, you know, and like being thrust into that role too early can certainly make you feel that way. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that I mean, I've been thinking a lot about boundaries lately. That's the part of my journey that I'm on right now is now that this podcast has gotten really big and my work is changing and shifting to be more 
public, how am I able to create boundaries for myself so that I still feel safe, so that I feel like I'm getting my needs met and learning how to say no and set limits on people who may not have experienced me setting limits before or understand why I'm setting a limit, that stuff, right? Because being raised female in our culture and someone who wants to do things right and has been a people pleaser in the past, like that's... And it's that helping your career. Right. That's a big one. Totally. It's huge. It's, it's so challenging. And the other thing I think that's relevant to what you're talking about is just being able to kind of pay attention and notice your own experience as it changes and evolves, as it inevitably will, in ways that you couldn't even anticipate. Totally. That's always what's happening for us, right? We're never going to be static. We're never staying the same throughout our lives. And yet we seem to think that we're going to get to like a point. <laughs> right. Where like, we'll figure it out, you know, or like sometimes it's it's the, when we get to a certain weight, sometimes it's when we recover, <laughs> you know, like, okay, then things will stop being so hard. And they might be hard in a different way, but they're still probably going to be hard because it's hard to be like in a human body, <laughs> mm-hmm. hard to be in, you know, this world that we live in right now at times, you know, not all the time, but having ways of navigating the the full range of our experience is so, so critical. Yeah, that's so important. Like, and I'm curious from your experience, you know, both with giving up drinking and also with healing your relationship with food and then seeing clients who, you know, healing their relationships with food as well. What do you see as sort of the difference between being in the active state of struggle and being recovered, quote unquote, whatever that means, how does that sort of change your day-to-day experience of life? I mean, I think it has to do with recognizing the reality of our existence, you know, which means that difficulty is a part of things. Impermanence is a part of things. Even if we're going through a difficult time right now. I mean, personally, I've just, I'm going through probably one of the hardest years of my life. I know that it, like everything else, won't last. And that you can hold that discomfort, you can hold that pain, you can hold whatever feelings you have about it, anger, sadness, frustration, why me, you know, shaking fists in the air, and do the things that you know to do to take care of yourself right now, today. Do your best, be gentle. That's to me the difference is just having a little bit more sort of perspective and time in recovery. That's a really beautiful point. I feel that way too with my own life. Like to me now, food is not a struggle. Like making food choices is easy. That part of it is basically put to rest. You know, I don't I don't feel like I'm going to be triggered or pulled back down that road. But I feel like there are other areas of life where some of the same dynamics come up, right? Like sometimes I will overwork to escape a feeling or get my teeth in some project, which is basically the same as overworking, but like in my personal life, you know, something around the house or getting a dress for an event or whatever it is. Like I will sometimes just bury myself or bury my emotions in other thoughts. Yeah. And then sort of shake my head and wake up like a day or two later and be like, oh, wow, I was just totally doing that thing. Like I I wasn't, you know, I was escaping again. 
but it's a way of becoming aware of it has started to happen faster and faster. Sometimes it'll happen in the moment, even if I'm like, oh, I'm doing this thing again. Okay, I have a choice now, right? And oh. it doesn't always happen in the moment. You know, sometimes it is a day or two later, but like, you know, it's the awareness is there and the sort of urgency around things feels like there's a little more space in it. I think that's huge to have yeah. that. And you might even choose to do the disconnecting thing. You might even choose to distract yourself, immerse yourself, check out in a certain way. That might be the best you can do at times. Yeah. You know, and, and if that could be okay, it's when we just need for things to be so different from how they are <laughs> that we get ourselves into trouble. Right. Totally. Yeah. I think, I think sort of recognizing where you're at with the coping skills you're using at the moment, you know, it's, and not beating yourself up for that is so huge. And sometimes, you know, it's just about letting ourselves respond as best as we can in that moment and then checking back in in five minutes. You know, someone was recently talking to me about a project that she absolutely needed to get done. And then she realized like she hadn't taken care of her basic needs. And so even though she was like driven, she had this deadline real and or imagined that, you know, it had to be done by the end of the night. She took a few minutes to just sit down and like feed herself and take a deep breath. And then she actually did have the energy to kind of complete the project. But that acknowledgement in that moment, that, that just interrupting the momentum of this force that needed to happen was so important. Totally. That's really important, like to be able to take a break, give yourself a little self-care. Yeah. So you're working on a book right now about Buddhist teachings and how they can affect people's relationships with food or be used to help people heal their relationships with food. And I'm curious to know some of the some of the teachings that you think are helpful for this. Yeah, I, I mean, I alluded to them a little bit earlier, this idea that our participation in the diet culture doesn't just hurt us. You know, it hurts the greater society. The lineage of Buddhism that I study is called Shambhala. And one of the things that sets Shambhala apart is their concern with an interest in creating enlightened society. So it's not about like just meditating on a cushion for hours in a cave and like attaining enlightenment for yourself. It's about being what they might call a householder, like someone who's in the world and whose practice is their everyday life. So how they make their bed, how they prepare a cup of coffee, how they relate to their partner or their child. The idea is that enlightened society is created in units of two. So you and I having this conversation, you know, that kind of a thing. And I really think that that idea of enlightened society in, applies to the implications of the diet culture because of like the things that we were talking about, how when we become so obsessed with it, we lose perspective on the bigger effects. And when we choose to opt out or go beyond it, we benefit ourselves, but also others. We might not even realize that they're trapped in it because it's so normalized. Yeah, and if we can show people another way through conversations or just how we behave around food and our bodies, that does have ripple effects. It has a huge effect. So if we 
are willing to be kind to our bodies, if we're willing to acknowledge the humanness of our bodies and take care of them, what does that model for others? Maybe you've had clients who like don't want to drink enough water because that would mean that they'd have to get up from their desk and pee several times a day. You know, there is generosity and just like giving yourself the basic things that you need to feel well. Yes. And yeah, it really starts with yourself too, right? Treating yourself the way you'd want to treat someone else. Well, and that seems to be true across the board in, in Buddhist thought is about, you know, it's certainly about being compassionate toward others, but the compassion has to start with yourself. Cannot be genuinely compassionate toward others without extending it to yourself first. And any of the practices where you're extending compassion to others, you always begin with yourself. Yeah, I think that's that's sometimes the hardest part for some of us, right? Like when I first started practicing self-compassion, it was really hard for me to get my mind around it. And I think one of the helpful ways in was to think about like, okay, well, how would I talk to a friend about this? Mm-hmm. Because I was actually like usually a lot more compassionate, at least outwardly towards people in my life than I was towards myself. Right. That in and of itself, the difficulty in showing yourself compassion can help you cultivate even more compassion, right? Because as you're extending it to others, you can be compassionate toward them in their own difficulty in extending that gentleness toward themselves. Totally. Because we're all in this together. We all have the same society that we've, we've learned these things from, right? Like this, this society is not very compassionate. No. It's not. It's very aggressive mm-hmm. and very punishing. And, you know, my meditation teacher tells me when I'm struggling with my practice that the ultimate practice is gentleness. And, you know, if, if we could keep coming back to that idea, because so much of the diet culture is about self-aggression. And if we could counteract that with gentleness, what would that look like? You know, working with our bodies as opposed to against them not fueling the fires that oppress people because of being in different size bodies or not participating in the diet culture the same way. Yeah. And I think that's giving ourselves that kindness to opt out is definitely the start because that does, you know, affect further generations, like any children you have in your life, any friends and family around you that are maybe struggling with their own stuff, seeing that you're being kinder towards yourself, it just shows a different way. But I think something that, you know, I hear a lot from people sort of reacting to the idea of self-compassion is like, well, if I was compassionate with myself, I would just go off the rails. Like I would never get anything done. I would eat like candy all day long. The sort of like fantasy of what happens when you stop, quote unquote, disciplining yourself. Right, right. I'm curious your your response to that. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely have a response to that. And even just the the idea of discipline in like the Buddhist sense is different than the kind of militant, aggressive discipline that we have in our culture and certainly in the diet culture. The, the sense of discipline is associated with joy and a sense of precision. So even just being able to discern in the moment what is needed. So when you bring up the idea of if I'm compassionate toward myself, I'll just, you know, go to hell with myself in a handbasket. The idea is, is truly about being gentle enough to check in and to see like, what would feel good? 
whether that's like a, an eating choice or a choice to be in motion with your body, it's not, it does not become about laziness. I mean, maybe initially when people have been driving themselves so hard, being compassionate is about letting go of that. But then, you know, the other piece of it is really about patience and allowing this process to unfold as it does at its own pace. And, you know, with many, many, many layers, as you know, so that over time, maybe letting certain aspects of self-care go stops feeling so indulgent and good. And maybe you start to actually crave some movement or you crave different foods, right? It's just like people working through like unconditional permission to eat. If they were to eat with the intention of having real satisfaction, maybe they would start off with having cheeseburgers and fries three times a day. But I doubt that it would last very long because when you truly check in with yourself and you really connect with how you feel in your body with a sense of gentleness and a sense of kindness and compassion, what's driving you changes. You're not reacting against limitations. You get to decide from your own source what will feel good. Right. That's such an important distinction because it's true that like in the beginning with unconditional permission to eat, people do tend to be drawn to the things that were off limits, right? Because that's what brings the most satisfaction initially is to be able to finally eat these things again. And it's just the pendulum swinging in the opposite direction. Right. I know. I call it the honeymoon phase with mm -hmm. all those foods because it's like it really is a phase. It's not going to last forever. But it's this phase of being so excited and in love with these foods that were off limits to you. And so, you know, most people have to go through that in order to have the pendulum swing back into the middle where it's like, OK, you're not rebelling against any strictures and you're not adhering to the strictures. You're just, you're doing this other thing that's like maybe the pendulum just swings completely off the clock and goes somewhere else because it's like this, you're on this whole different plane, you know, you're operating from desire, right? And connection to your body's desires and needs rather than reacting and responding to outside rules. And not your fears of your body's desires and needs because even the words desire and need become scary in the diet culture. Totally. When we reconnect with what we really, what, with what our actual preferences are, which some of us never even, you know, were able to discover, we learn that we can trust those things. Absolutely. That's the importance of patience too, because how many people get freaked out during that unconditional permission, that first ex initial experience with unconditional permission to eat? Totally. I think it scares people and they're like, it, you know, reinforces all the negative beliefs and fears that they had. Like, see what happens? I am doing this. I am going completely off the rails. So this intuitive eating thing just can't be for me. And that's why I'm always talking about the honeymoon phase and trying to reinforce that it is a, a phase and that if you can just be patient and work through it, you'll get to the other side. And I've seen so many people get there where it's like, I never thought I would want the sort of quote unquote healthy foods I was eating when I was dieting again. And then one day I woke up and was like, you know what I'd really like. And it was something that they had labeled as diet food or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. So, and you know, that's coming from authentic desire. It's not coming from following the rules. And it's, it's amazing when that happens because then it's like truly everything is on the table. And what would you like? What would you like to choose from this unlimited array of options?
Well, and it's funny because I've been thinking a lot lately about this idea of unconditional permission as applying to our thoughts as well. Because I think the thought work ends up being the deepest work, right? Certainly around like body image and a lot of that like really deep-seated diet mentality stuff, like even after the initial kind of surface stuff is gone. And a lot of people think that they need to just cut that off, stop it abruptly, stop thinking it. And part of what I try to work with with people is like, could you allow yourself to have the thought and then to respond to it? Could you not see it as a problem that you still have thoughts about weight, for example, or about the desire to lose weight? Could you allow yourself to have the thoughts that are naturally occurring to you and respond to those things skillfully with this sort of accumulating knowledge that you have about this new approach? I love that. Yeah, I do that a lot with people too, like the sort of thinking about a response because that's actually what's building the neural pathways in your brain to have different thoughts. You can't just cut them off because they're still, those neural connections are still there. Your brain still goes down that path and there's nothing you can really do about it and attempting to block it just causes more pain. So yeah, working with it and sort of talking back or having a dialogue with those parts of your brain is the way to start forging new connections. And it also reinforces this idea that there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with the thoughts that you're having. There's nothing wrong with the feelings you're feeling. And if you could sort of recognize that at any of these points, you're sort of at a fork in the road where you could go down the habitual pathway, or you can kind of reinforce often one of many healthier choices, that pathway that's more aligned with deeper values becomes reinforced and a little bit more accessible each time you choose it. Yeah, absolutely. I love that because it's also taking some of the shame out of it. Like, I love the Buddhist idea of the second arrow. Mm -hmm. When we're harmed by something or something causes us pain, it's like being shot with an arrow. And then judging ourselves is like shooting ourselves with a second arrow, which we would never do with an actual arrow. So why are we doing it with, with thoughts, right? Let's just let our thoughts be what they are without judgment. And then if we want to make a change, that's totally okay. But we can do it from a place of non-judgment, from a place of caring and compassion. And the idea behind that too is that we don't have any control over the first arrow. Maybe over time, if we're talking about thoughts, we can kind of shift things in a certain direction. But like as a single thought happens, we don't have control over that. Or as something negative happens to us, we don't have any control over that. But we do have some control over the way that we respond to it. And so if we can respond with gentleness, if we could respond with self-compassion, that changes the experience of the first arrow rather than adding more pain. Yeah, it's like attending to the first arrow and taking care of yourself to minimize that pain or to recover from that pain. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I love all of this. And I could talk to you forever, but I want to be mindful of our time. So tell me where listeners can find you and learn more about your work. Sure. You can find me at my website, which is eat to love It's E-A-T, the number two, L-O-V-E. And the whole idea is that we're eating in a way that shows our bodies love and hopefully the greater planet love. <laughs> and I also offer a monthly free call to the intuitive eating community. A lot of your listeners probably are familiar with it. It's intuitiveeatingcommunity.org and it's free to join. 
Evelyn and Elise monitor it and they don't spam or anything like that. And <laughs> I think you get like one email a month and it's just the reminder that I'm going to be doing a free call. And I'm basically just take each of the principles of intuitive eating one at a time. I start off the cycle with the stages of intuitive eating and then go through the 10 principles. And it's just a nice way for people in a lot of ways who are doing it yourself, kind of taking the DIY approach to intuitive eating to kind of have that next level of engagement with someone who practices in this field. Yeah, that's so great. So that's intuitiveeatingcommunity.org? Dot org, exactly. And then for people who also work with clients, like other dietitians or therapists or health coaches, I co-teach a meditation instructor training course with my meditation teacher, Susan Piver. And that's an online course that lasts nine weeks. And it helps you to establish your own personal meditation practice and then learn how to share it with others in your practice skillfully and authentically. That is so cool. I love that. So I'm going to put links to all of that stuff in the show notes so people can find you easily. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you for sharing all, all your great insights and your story. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Christy, for having this platform where people can realize that they're not crazy, the culture is. Mm, yes, love it. <laughs> so that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guests for being here and to you guys for listening. And we'll be back again next week with another brand new episode. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch. And the best way to do that is via email. So you can go to christyharrison.com slash email to sign up for my VIP list. I'll send you info about new episodes of the podcast as they drop, as well as exclusive sneak previews of new episodes, giveaways and other special deals on the products and services I offer, special tips on how to make peace with food and learn to trust your body, and a whole lot more. Sign up at christyharrison.com slash email. You can also subscribe via iTunes and leave us a nice rating and review, which is a great way to get the word out about the podcast and help other people find these important messages. Just go to iTunes from your computer or your podcast app, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click on the result that comes up under podcasts, and then click on ratings and reviews, and you can leave a rating and review right there. And I really appreciate all the five-star reviews and wonderful ratings that we've gotten because it's helped us climb really high right now in the rankings. And that's really cool because we're competing against some of the weight management and body shaming types of messages that I'm trying to fight with this podcast. So we've really started to beat out a lot of the diety voices, and I'd love to continue climbing higher in the rankings to get this message out even further. So please leave us a nice rating and review. It's so very much appreciated. And thanks to everyone who's left reviews so far. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Who just wants your food, and you ain't really beat.